Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, building a household of faith on a foundation of grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. All right, we are going to continue in our study of what we're calling confessional Baptist covenant theology. Confessionals kind of puts us on notice that we're not making this up, okay? This is something that has been hammered out over the the centuries as people have wrestled with the Word of God and um, looked into it and taught it and systematized it. And uh, we're going to stand on the shoulders of others in that respect. We're also looking at, a, at the, what Scripture teaches about covenants from a Baptist perspective, which I think um, I'm, I'm hoping to make a case that that is a biblical perspective as we go along. But let me give you just a brief review of what this is about, um, and then we'll get on into the specific topic for today. So the, the general idea of what we're teaching is um, this Baptist covenant theology. It teaches that God has revealed his dealings with mankind in terms of covenants. So we saw last week that Adam broke God's covenant of... That's a little bit too loud for me, Heath. I like to yell anyway. Can you bring the these down? Yeah. That way I can yell more freely. <clears throat> okay. So, thank you. Um, so Adam broke God's covenant of life or covenant of works in the garden. And from that point, God has revealed his grace through a series of covenants, which revealed a covenant to come, which we'll call the, the new covenant or the covenant of grace um, that's made with all of God's chosen people. And so what I want you to see here, well, first of all, I'll just remind you of a definition of a biblical covenant, what we're talking about it's more than simply a promise. It's a relational arrangement initiated by God's sovereign dispensing of his kindness, goodness, and wisdom toward, toward man. So just think in terms of these four things. It's a relational arrangement. It brings the parties into relationship in a, in a way, in a more intimate way than they were before. Um, a biblical covenant is one that is initiated by God. It is intended for our good, for our blessing, to demonstrate God's wisdom and kindness and goodness. And sometimes these covenants come with conditions and sometimes they're not conditional. We'll see uh, both of those today. All right. So let me show you the, the diagram that we've been working off of. Finally got my color version in there. Slightly looks more colorful on my screen than that. But um, anyway, so what we see is that and we made this case at the beginning that, that Scripture views uh, redemptive history, in, at least in a very broad sweep, in terms of two basic covenants, what's called the Old Covenant and what's called the New Covenant. Hebrews 8 unpacks that in great detail, but we see that also in other ways. Now, um, in the Old Covenant, we see a, um, it is kind of a, it's a conditional covenant. It's a, a, a law-based covenant. And yet it doesn't stand alone. And in fact, in that covenant or in those covenants, those individual covenants, we see the gospel being revealed over and over and being pointed to. But the, the covenant that actually saves people is the one that is enacted 
by Christ's life, death, uh, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Okay, so the, the new covenant, which does that, does not happen until Christ comes. So, when, so the way that we're looking at this is to say that all those things in, that we see in the old covenant that talk about salvation are actually pointing forward to the new covenant, pointing forward to what Christ is doing. Okay, so last week we, we focused on this little thing over here on the left side that's, that's sideways, the covenant of works. And we saw that Adam uh, broke that covenant and, uh, and therefore we are in need of a different kind of covenant relationship, a covenant of grace. All right, so we've talked uh, over the last few weeks about how uh, this Im impacts our our theology in so many ways. It impacts our understanding of the gospel. It impacts our understanding of the law. It impacts our understanding of God's goodness in relating to uh, his people and also the nature of the church and the interpretation of scripture, and the flow of scripture. So now we're going to get into um, specifically into the, the covenant that God made with Abraham Hopefully, does everybody have an outline? If you don't, then Jonathan will provide for you. And I have, um, I have some overall class outlines up here if you've not been here before and you want to get one of those to see where we're going. And um, a couple of outlines left over from last week on the Covenant of Works if you want to grab one of those. All right, let's ask the Lord to bless our study now. Our Father in heaven, we come to you, we... We want to see your, your hand and your wisdom in, uh, unfolded in history and in the scriptures for us. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us and enlighten us, uh, show us the, the meaning of your word, show us how it uh, impacts where we are in redemptive history and what you're doing in our lives. I ask, Father, that you'd especially give us uh, insight into what you did uh, in the covenant that you made with Abraham and how that uh, affects and shapes the way we view the rest of Scripture and so that we might uh, understand your ways more fully and be able to worship you uh, with uh, greater uh, vigor and, and appreciation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some big chunks of Scripture here to begin with just to kind of lay a foundation. So if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 15. There are really three major sections in the book of Genesis that unfold God's covenant dealings with Abraham. They're Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. I'm going to focus on Genesis 15 and 17 because there, there's a lot of overlapping material in these, and yet we do need to see a little bit of the distinctions there. Um, while you're turning to Genesis 15, let me just remind you of what Genesis 12 t teaches us. God appears to Abram. This is when he first appeared to Abram and he calls him out of his country um, to come out to this country to uh, a promised land. And he promises to bless him. He promises in, in that context to make him a great nation and to bless all the families of the earth through him. Okay, very, very important promise that God made to him in Genesis 12. And you'll see that basically as we move on into chapter 15, chapter 17, those things get fleshed out a little bit more and a little bit more expanded as we go along. So follow with me as I read Genesis chapter 15 
And I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm going to skip a little section here, there in the middle just for the sake of time. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now let me just make a point here. Most of you probably know this, but um, Ab uh, Abraham was first called Abram. And in the process of God dealing with him, he actually changes his name as part of his giving him these promises. Okay, so, he, so here, we're, it's not a different person here. It's the same person. We're just, he, he's still Abram in this section. Okay, he said, he came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. A lot going on there. Verse 7, it says, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And then it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now I want to skip down to verse 17. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces, these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. I'm going to stop there. Now, let me just comment about that briefly. What in the world is going on there? During this time in, and, and in this area of the world, there was a common understanding of a covenant. Okay? And, and this would happen... Uh, uh, va uh, lords would make covenants with their with their vassals, okay, with the idea that that they they were um, uh, sometimes imposing certain conditions on them, and in return they would give them certain benefits, okay. And the way that this was typically um, formally uh, enacted was to do something like this: they would cut open an animal in pieces put the pieces on either side, and then they would walk through the pieces together. And what that symbolized was, we're agreeing that if either of us fails to live up to the conditions of this covenant, we're going to be like this animal. We're calling upon uh, ourselves to be cursed by being cut in two, just like this animal, if we fail to live up to these conditions. So we see here that God, in a sense, is, is taking on this, this pattern and he's communicating something to, to Abram through that. He's communicating to Abram that I'm making a covenant here, splitting the animal in pieces. In fact, 
um, and literally when we see covenants being enacted in the Old Testament, the, what, what is said literally is to cut a covenant. So you cut the animal, you cut a covenant. Okay? So God is cutting a covenant. But who goes through the pieces? It's this flaming pot and uh, uh, smoking fire, uh, flaming torch and smoking fire pot. That is a representation of God. You see, Adam, I mean, uh, Abram was in a deep sleep. Did he do anything? No, he, did, he didn't do anything. He just, he just well, in a, he was asleep in a sense, but he just watched while God did it. God took on the condition and, in a sense, the curse of the covenant. He didn't uh, have Abram walk through the pieces with him. Okay, so that's important. Now let's look on into Genesis chapter 17. So Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 4. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. This is where God changes his name. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then he goes on to give the details of how, that, how that's to, to, be hap, to be done. Okay? So, um, I want us to kind of take a step back here and just think for a moment about what it is that Abraham understood about what was going on here. Did Abraham say, oh, good. I'm going to get a big old plot of land, and I'm going to have a whole bunch of kids. Is that what Abram or Abraham took away from what God promised him? I want, to, I want us to see that, that Abraham himself understood that what was going on here was a much bigger message than that, a much bigger promise than that. So we're going to look at three New Testament passages that tell us what Abraham heard and saw, okay, what he understood to be going on. So turn with me to begin with to John chapter 8, verse 56. John chapter 8, verse 56. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says to them, and I won't go to the whole context, but um, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Okay. Your, your, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus is, is saying that, that when God revealed this covenant with Abraham, in some way, Abraham understood that what was being promised here was about Christ. 
It was about this future Messiah, this future Savior that God was to provide. It wasn't just about a whole bunch of kids, okay? He saw something more than that. He saw Christ being uh, promised to him, okay? Now let's go on and look in Galatians chapter 3. We could spend several weeks in Galatians on this issue. We'll, we'll refrain from that, but we are going to come back to Galatians multiple times. Galatians chapter 3, and look at verse 8. Okay, in Galatians 3, 8, Paul says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Okay, now, unless you get the wrong idea that maybe this was some other time that we didn't know about. When was it that God preached the gospel to Abraham? He tells us exactly when he preached the gospel. It's when he said, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Okay? And he said that basically in every one of those passages that we read. In you shall all the nations be blessed. In some way, that communicated the gospel to Abraham. Now, I think Abraham was probably a better interpreter of scripture than we are. Because he understood what God was saying in that. We tend to see it kind of on a superficial, uh, you know, physical level and not see what's behind that. But the only way that the nations would truly be blessed is if a Savior was provided. And we also have the background of Genesis chapter 3 where, where God had already promised that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. So, so Abraham's already primed to understand that, that through this um, process of, of offspring, God was going to provide a savior through the offspring to, to crush the, the, the work of Satan. And so he understood that to be the gospel. All right, now keep on going over into Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 9. <clears throat> Again, there are a lot of things in Hebrews that could cast light on this subject. We're just going to look at one particular statement. Hebrews 11:9 says, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So again, that, puts us, that helps us to understand that what Abraham heard being promised was not just simply that he was going to have a really large piece of real estate in the Middle East, but that he was going to have something that was uh, built and designed by God, something heavenly, something more than the earthly land of Canaan. Okay? So with that in mind, that, I think that helps us just to, to understand the, the whole passage and what's going on there. There's a lot more going on than might meet the eye on the surface. So uh, what I want to explore next is um, the, the, the structure of this covenant. And what I want to, I want to make a case to you that this covenant that was made with Abraham was actually two covenants in one. Two 
related covenants, but very different in terms of their principles. Okay? They, they, in, in a sense, they, they advance the same purpose, but with a very different basis. Okay? So let's ask ourselves to, be, to begin with, was the covenant that God made with Abraham an unconditional covenant or a conditional covenant? It's kind of a trick question, really. In Genesis 15, it seems clearly unconditional, doesn't it? Abraham is not even, he's not active in accepting any terms or anything like that. In fact, he's in a deep sleep. Only God walks through the pieces. God says, I'm going to fulfill this covenant. This is a, this is a, a unilateral um, movement from me to you, a promise from me to you. You're doing nothing here. There's not a single condition mentioned in there. It's simply a promise of what God is going to do. And how did he respond? By getting busy doing stuff? No. It says he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Okay? So his only response to that covenant revelation was simply to believe. It was simply to accept what God had done and what God was going to do, what he had promised, engaged himself to do on, on pain of death in a sense. Of course, God doesn't, can't, really die as, as God, okay? But, um, but he was saying, this is going to happen. I am going to do it, okay? So that, in a sense, that was unconditional. But then in Genesis 17, we see a, it says, I'm making this covenant with you, and the very thing that he says is, you got to do something. What do you have to do? You have to circumcise the, the males of your household, and you have to con continue that through the generations, okay? So there was a condition in that sense. So that kind of puts us on notice that, uh, that there's actually two different things going on here, and it's very important that we distinguish these two different things. Let me also just mention that circumcision, we see, it doesn't stand alone, but at, in the progress of the, of Revelation, we see that circumcision becomes kind of the entry point to the entire law, the law of Moses. So to commit oneself to circumcise is also to commit oneself to the whole law of Moses eventually when God reveals that. And we see that just kind of in seed form in circumcision by itself. So, so we see uh, a conditional, an unconditional covenant. We see a conditional covenant. And this is why I, I, I believe that it's best understood that this is actually two covenants in one. And now, if you would, if, I should have told you to keep your finger in Galatians. It would probably be blue by now. But um, if you go back to Galatians, let's look at chapter 4 now. Galatians chapter 4. What we're going to do is look at an allegory that Paul unfolds for us. In Galatians chapter 4, and this was something I never really understood very well until I kind of dug into it recently. And it makes a whole lot more sense to me now that I've studied it a little bit more. Maybe if it didn't make sense to you, we'll try to help you work through it too. Okay, Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to begin with verse 21 and read all the way through 31. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, and one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. 
Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. I mean, he's like, you know, if you struggle with trying to interpret allegories, he's going to lay it all out for you. This is like your, your high school English teacher, you know, telling you, okay, this is an allegory, and this means this, this means this, this means this. He's just going to lay it all out in case we missed it, which we probably did, okay? So he's going to lay it out there, and he says that um, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. In God's providence, God enacted through the family dynamics of Abraham the very covenant arrangements that he was revealing. Okay? So he illustrated it in Abraham's family. So he says, These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Remember, Hagar was Abraham's slave. That, and, and when they said, well, you know, God said he's gonna have a, you're going to have a son, so we've got to do something here because Sarah's too old to have a son. So Sarah says, well, why don't you take my, my maid here and, and my servant, and, and you can have a son through her. So, so they were beginning to try to do their own thing with this, and this is where Hagar became involved. She was uh, Sarah's servant who bore Abraham a son. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman." And what I want to do now is just kind of break this down into a little chart, compare and contrast between the two. Because there are several points where Abraham's sons and really Abraham's wives, you might say, are, are, um, illust illustrate two different covenants here. And it's a very sharp contrast. So to begin with, we see that the children of Hagar are called the children of the flesh whereas the children or child of Sarah is the child of promise. Now, why would, that, why would he say that? They're both born of women, okay? But the difference is Hagar bore a child based on Abraham's works or Abraham's efforts, ordinary, just ordinary effort of a man trying to have a child, whereas Sarah bore a child when it was beyond humanly possible ordinarily, right? She was 90 years old, and, and she was ch past childbearing by any possible reckoning. Abraham was nearly 100 years old. And so there was a miracle that took place for Isaac to be born. And so that's why this is a sharp contrast between the two. One was, one was done by his effort, really without God's approval. The other was done purely by God's uh, mercy and power. Okay? Uh, second of all, we see that there's a, a contrast in the place. 
um, the, one of them corresponds to Mount Sinai, which, which he um, uh, associates with the Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, that is, those who were um, under the law, bound by the law, and in fact, looking to the law for something that the law wouldn't give, and that is for their salvation. Okay? Whereas uh, the, uh, the other son, the Isaac, corresponds to the Jerusalem above, which corresponds or symbolizes a place of redemption. Okay? And like, and like um, Abraham, who looked for a heavenly city. This was corresponding to the Jerusalem above. Okay? We see a contrast in their condition. That is that one was, a, was uh, in slavery. Hagar was in slavery. Sarah was in freedom. And Hagar's child was born into slavery because she was a son. He was a son of a slave. Sarah's son was born into freedom because he was the son of a free woman. Okay? Then we go on and we see that there's this ironic fruitlessness on the part of Hagar and Ishmael and that line. Whereas there's an ironic fruitless, I mean fruitfulness on the part of the uh, uh, on Sarah and Isaac. Of all things, you can only imagine that in this what looked like a line that was about to be snuffed out entirely becomes very fruitful, but both both physically but ultimately spiritually in terms of the spiritual offspring of Abraham. We also see that um, the, uh, the um, position of Hagar in that family, wait a minute, I said the wrong thing first. Okay, we also see that, um, that the Hagar began to, to persecute Sarah. And that figured the persecution of Christians by Jews, ultimately. Then we see another thing, and that is that Hagar's position in that family and Ishmael's position in that family was temporary. And God specifically said, cast out the slave woman. Okay? So she was, she was taken out of the family. It was a temporary arrangement. Okay? Whereas Isaac was, uh, symbolized this eternal uh, connection to Abraham's family. Then we also see related to that that uh, Ishmael had no inheritance. He was put out of the family so that he would not inherit anything. And then um, Isaac was promised a glorious inheritance. So in the end, we can say that there, there are two very different covenants here between, that are illustrated by Abraham's sons. One of those is the old covenant that's a conditional covenant um, that is related to, it's a type of covenant of works. We haven't tied it into the formal covenant of works that we talked about last week yet, but it is a covenant with conditions. And then we see that the uh, covenant with Sarah and Isaac um, is promising or pointing forward to the new covenant, pointing forward to the provision of a Savior, and the, which points forward to the actual outworking and uh, establishment of the covenant of grace. Okay. So I hope that that's helpful to you. I, I've always found that to be a kind of confusing passage. All right. Um, 
Now, I'll also just mention that some of the things that are talked about here are things that aren't actually happening yet in Abraham's life. I mean, Mount Sinai hasn't shown up yet. Uh, Jerusalem as a place of uh, slavery to the, to the law is not there yet. So it's kind of looking forward to the full manifestation of the, the full outworking. And it starts off with just circumcision, but then circumcision becomes the whole law of Moses. And so all that kind of ultimately comes out of that line, all right? So I, I think it's, ex, it's extremely important that we make a proper distinction of these two covenants, even within the overall covenant uh, with Abraham. We can, it's treated as one covenant in a sense, but it's really two principles within that covenant, and both of them are called covenants. In Genesis 15, God says, I'll make a covenant with you. In Genesis 17, he says, I'll make a covenant with you. And then in Galatians chapter 4, it says explicitly, these are two covenants, okay? So there's two covenants, but then in a sense, they kind of are carried around in one package that we call the Abrahamic covenant. So the, this distinguishing properly between these covenants within a covenant is crucial for our theology of salvation, for our understanding of the law, for our understanding of the nature of the church, as well as uh, how we view the future and, and uh, biblical prophecy and so forth. And uh, mixing the earthly, temporary, and typical covenant with the spiritual, permanent, and real blessings of the, uh, the covenant on the right can have some pretty disastrous consequences in our theology. Now, even though what I've done so far is made a, a sharp distinction between the two, I want us to be clear that Scripture intertwines these two in such a way that you can't totally separate them. Okay, so we wouldn't want to make it sound like they're just off there, you know, floating separately in space doing two entirely different things. So the first thing I want us to see is that the spiritual covenant promised Christ. That's how Abraham saw it. He saw that that he saw Christ's day prophesied, and he was glad. It promised Christ, and it promised a spiritual people, the offspring of Abraham, the true offspring of Abraham, according to the New Testament. So that's the, the primary focus of the, uh, of the spiritual covenant. But the fleshly covenant also had purposes, related purposes, and we're going to unpack these in more detail later. Let me just quickly mention them. First of all, this covenant actually preserved the people from whom the promised seed, the promised offspring, was going to arise. The, the offspring who would save them was going to come from Abraham's line. And so there needed to be a distinction of Abraham's people, physical people, his family, uh, down through history so that it could be seen that God was fulfilling the prophecy that he, um, that he uh, promised and also that he was actually doing it that way. Okay? Uh, second of all, the, this fleshly covenant served as a type. It's like a shadow. It, it shows in physical terms what the spiritual looks like. So when we see the, the, the uh, a physical offspring of Abraham, the family of Abraham... Um, that is a picture for us of the fruitfulness of the gospel in drawing the spiritual children of Abraham to God. Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's a type of that as well. So it relates as type to reality. 
And then the third thing is that this conditional uh, physical fleshly covenant illustrated the condemning function of the law because it brings in conditions and ultimately God's, the, the, the people determine or come uh, or experience the fact that you can't obey the law enough to be justified. You can never obey it perfectly and, it, and, and the law as a means of justification requires perfect obedience. And so this just continues to underscore the fact that this is not the way. This is not the provision for you. Only, only through the, the seed, the offspring, Christ himself, can you be provided for in terms of salvation. Okay, so those, that's the intertwining part. And let me just say also that uh, especially in Abraham's day and following, but even now, many of those who are the physical descendants of Abraham are also spiritual descendants of Abraham. At first, that was uh, a very close identity between those two. And so uh, God speaks to the physical uh, children of Abraham as though they are the spiritual because there's often an, a, a huge overlap between those two. So we see that kind of an intertwining as well. So I think that this, this perspective that I'm, I'm presenting to you fits this overall framework of, um, of the idea that the covenant of grace is revealed in the old covenant, but it's not sealed until Christ came. So I want to show you, first of all, a more specific diagram. And I'll go ahead and get, my, get our, our laughs out about this because I had this, and, and I made it dark so it's probably not as visible. But um, I had this long debate with Debbie about whether this top thing looks like an eye or not. Okay, I was trying to make it look like an eye. She says it looks like an arrow pointing backwards. So if you disagree with her, please tell her after the... Um, I've changed it, and I put like eyelashes on it and all kinds of stuff to, to make it look more like that. Even I put veins in the, uh, you know, none of that seemed to work very well. But anyway, that's supposed to be an eye at the top. And that represents the spiritual covenant looking forward to the new covenant. Because they were, the spiritual covenant was not conditional. It was just purely promises that God had uh, covenanted himself to fulfill. So it's looking forward to the fulfillment of that in Christ himself um, and um, to those that, who are in Christ who are called the seed or the offspring of Abraham and would be provided a, a heavenly country. Um, then uh, the lower one is not an eyeball because it doesn't look directly to the new covenant. In fact, it becomes folds into and becomes the Mosaic covenant, the, the, the covenant that God made with Moses and the people. So uh, just to read out the contrast on top, the, the spiritual covenant is a promise. It is uh, made to the spiritual seed. It contains spiritual blessings. It is the, the real covenant, okay? It's the, the realities of eternal realities. It is unconditional. It's received by faith alone. That's how Abraham received it. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, the lower one is made to the natural seed. It contains natural blessings. Um, it is a type of the upper covenant. Um, it is a conditional covenant. It required circumcision. Ultimately, like I said, that comes into um, committing to circumcision, ultimately commits to all the law 
of Moses. And then those little arrows under there uh, are the, the fact that, that God intended for that to be a, a structure and a foundation uh, on which he would fulfill the new covenant. So it's not that those are opposed in the sense of God's purposes, but he used that as well to help form the, the environment in which he fulfills the new covenant. We'll talk about the Mosaic covenant next week. Okay, So that's kind of in detail what that, what that looks like. And let me just go back now and see how this fits into this little picture here. And that is that what we're seeing here is, think of in the old covenant, let's think of the, of the Abrahamic covenant as kind of cutting a swath across the old covenant there. And the old covenant, I mean, co- uh, yeah, that whole area there. And we see that both are being uh, enacted at the same time. The, the old covenant, the, the conditional part is being uh, imposed upon them. That is, that they must circumcise and maintain that distinction of their family uh, into uh, future generations. But at the same time, the covenant of grace is being revealed because God is saying, I'm promising you a seed who will, who will be the seed to uh, rescue you. Okay. Now, um, in just the last few minutes, I need to say uh, <laughs> a lot in, in really quick time. So there are, there are some other ways that people have proposed of relating these covenants. I think everybody recognizes that there's a, some kind of a duality here in the Abrahamic covenant. But there are other ways of doing this that lead to contradiction and errors. The first way was the way of the Jews. The Jews believed that if they were part of that, that uh, uh, second, the bottom one, that if they were part of that, then that... Uh, gave them the right to all the blessings of the top. That is, if I'm a child of, I'm an offspring of Abraham, and I'm circumcised, then I have all the spiritual blessings that are promised in the um, the uh, unconditional covenant. But that's simply not true. Jesus said in Matthew three nine, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. That was not, not what God intended. Well, there's another way, and these next two ways, we're going to actually spend a week on each one of these, so I'm only going to give you a little bit of a taste just to kind of get you bothered and you know, hopefully ready to come back in a few weeks to hear the, the full details of it. But the second way that this is done is by dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is another system uh, that's uh, kind of uh, an alternative to covenant theology. Um, dispensationalism does not recognize the temporary and conditional nature of the fleshly covenant, of the natural covenant. And, and so it sees a separate identity and destiny for Israel after the flesh. And so the, there's a, there are two different peoples of God then that run through all of redemptive history, all, really all the way through eternity because of this uh, idea that, there, that the fleshly covenant is somehow unconditional and, and eternal. Whereas I think we've made a case, and you look at Galatians chapter 4, to see that um, it, uh, Hagar and her son were cast out. It was temporary. They were not to be given the inheritance. Now, every, every Jew 
in the world who's, who's ever lived since the time of Christ and lives now has uh, uh, available to them all the same gospel privileges that any Gentile has now on the same basis, and that is faith in Christ, and the same basis that Abraham had it, and that is believing, seeing Christ, and trusting him alone for righteousness. So no one is being shut out of the people of God. It's not like that. But, the, but that idea that there's two separate identities, it simply doesn't, doesn't fit the evidence. Okay? It, in fact, that undermines the value of the Old Testament for Gentiles in some respects. And it also confuses the nature of the church. Well, the third area is pedobaptist, pedobaptism. And that is the, the view that um, the, the, the circumcision in the, in the Abrahamic covenant becomes a, a model for the church and the new covenant, which means that they, it's an argument that's used to uh, justify baptizing infants of believers. Okay, So the problem here is that pedobaptists see the entire Abrahamic covenant both of these two things as an administration or a, an implementation, you might say, or a manifestation of the covenant of grace. So the, the physical part is almost like uh, thought of as just like a shell for the spiritual part. But it's all together with, under the same principle, and the principle is under the principle of grace, rather than seeing that one is a principle of law and the other is a principle of promise or grace. And so they see this idea of the physical seed as an ongoing principle of including children of believers in the covenant, which I believe misapplies the purpose of that physical covenant with the physical seed, and it continues to apply that mistaken principle into the new covenant, um, even after the purpose of the outward physical covenant has ended. And it was intended to bring us Christ, and it's done what it intend, was intended to do. And let me la say last, the last thing, and that is Christ himself is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And we can't, if, if you don't get anything else, get this, even though I'm over time and I'm sorry about that. But let's get this, that Christ fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. He fulfilled it in both respects. He was the fulfillment of the conditions of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, first of all, he was circumcised, but then ultimately he goes on to uh, obey all of God's law, including submitting himself to the law, all the law of Moses. So he perfectly kept, well, I should have said more importantly, he was the true seed of Abraham. He was the physical seed of Abraham. He was the offspring of Abraham promised. And he perfectly kept the condition of the covenant as well as the law of Moses. But not only that, Christ fulfilled the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the one that it all points to. He is the seed. In fact, we, you may be familiar with this. Um, Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So ultimately, the Abrahamic covenant is specifically uh, prophesying and promising the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom the nations are blessed. Okay. All right. So I, I don't have time for group questions, but I'll close in prayer. And what?
we can talk about it tonight, and, and I'll stay up here for a few minutes if you have burning questions that you can't live through tonight for. So, All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it weaves so many threads together into one uh, consistent story uh, telling us how you have brought redemption about. And we thank you that we can look at Abraham, something uh, someone who lived so long ago and, uh, and events that happened so long ago and, and see light on our Savior from that. I ask, Father, that um, we would not be lost by obscure technical details and arguments about this and miss out on the glory of Christ. And so if there's anything uh, in my presentation that might have distracted from the glory of Christ, I ask, Father, that you would just do away with that in people's hearts and minds and that we would all go away with our hearts full of what Christ has done and be ready to learn more about his work in the days coming. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at 1345 Annaloo Drive.